How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. Uh, this is part, I guess, kind of part two, uh, section two chapter. I don't, I don't even know what to call it. It's just uh, we're done all of this sort of preliminary stuff. Now we're going to be getting into uh, from definitions and a bit of a description about evolution in general. We're going to be getting into uh, the nitty-gritty of some of the historical details, uh, how uh, what's called virtuality works, and how some historical figures have kind of messed up a bit when it came to this question uh, during the Baroque period of theology, which is second scholastic period, so 16th, 17th century. Uh, so again, long before Newman, not even talking about Newman yet. Um, and, and I feel, uh, for some reason, it feels like I have already done this video. I don't know. I I legitimately took all the notes for this. I got the thumbnail, everything. And then I did a completely uh, a, a second section that I had written up all my notes and thumbnail for. And then I realized in looking back that I hadn't done the I hadn't done this one. So the next video is going to actually be out relatively shortly. Sorry for the two week wait. I thought that I'd done one last week, but I'll make up for it uh, for you guys. But. Uh, before we get started, if you appreciate stuff like this, um, definitely consider becoming a patron. Uh, honestly, this is the sort of stuff I enjoy the most. Uh, we can actually uh, get into the nitty gritty, get into some depth uh, rather than just random uh, live streams of short questions. We can actually study over a period of weeks and months a certain issue uh, in depth uh, that is relevant uh, to to a lot of people. Um, I have a few other ideas for series like this that I'm going to do. Uh, definitely, uh, they will be good. And I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot out of it because I know that uh, at least forcing myself to dive deeper into these issues has definitely uh, helped out with my thought uh, when it comes to the evolution of Catholic dogma. So uh, first, um, today we're going to be looking at what the starting point, uh, sorry, the st true starting point of all dogmatic or theological evolution. So kind of the the place in which we start, uh, we, we have looked over uh, sort of how evolution works in general, how it would kind of work towards uh, dogmatics in general. But what is that place uh, from which we start? Where where do we go from? Um, is it uh, from the text of Scripture? Uh, is it from the text of the, of the theologians? Is it from uh, how much the apostles knew? Uh, do are, are we saying that we know more than the apostles? Are we saying um, that we know more than the first generation of believers? Are we saying that we know more than scripture, more than the scriptural authors, more than revelation? What, what are we saying? Are we saying that we're going places that revelation didn't go? Are we staying within revelation? There's, there's a lot of questions we can ask. And really the the consideration of what the true starting point of the evolution of dogma is, is going to be vital uh, for refuting a lot of the misunderstandings uh, that we have, because this, again, as I've said a million times before, is the most myth misunderstood uh, doctrine that's out there uh, on the, the popular level. Uh, there, there's a few unpopular ones that are probably more misunderstood. But really, the development of doctrine is the magic wand that you get a lot of Catholic apologists using to make all the mess of history go away um, and to even in certain times overturn history. Uh, it's something which is abused uh, all the time, something which is misunderstood, 
there's not much in the English language uh, concerning this issue. It's it's really unfortunate. But, but there's there's a but to this. But when we go back to some of these debates that happened in the 20th century uh, between Father Schultz, uh, Father Marine Sola, Father Gary Lagrange. Uh, when we go back to these debates, and we also can kind of contrast the the, the Catholic um, beliefs with the modernist beliefs. We can contrast the Protestant beliefs with the Baroque scholastic beliefs. When when we look back to all of these disputes that happened, we can we can truly uh, have a more profound understanding of exactly what dogmatic development is. And not only is it going to make us better historians, not only is it going to make us better theologians, but it will help with the, the defense of the faith in explaining to people how, how can church history look one way, uh, at least the, the early church look one way, and then today look a different way. Because the answers that a lot of people at least originally gave were not good. Um, at least on the, the sort of popular level, I guess you kind of have two stages. In one stage, you have uh, people who just think it's always been uh, exactly the same. Uh, there's been no changes. Uh, and uh, if, if you have quotes from the fathers that may look like they're um, contradictory or may look like they're not saying the same thing, then um, that's actually just forged or faked or uh, somehow taken out of context uh, to which that's not what they're saying. So on the one side, you have people that have an absolute uh, sort of historical rigidity, I guess you could say like that. On the other hand, you have uh, people that just believe in a constant flux. I, I guess we could call them, uh, what was it? I think it was Parmenides that thought that there was no uh, being but only becoming uh, in, in the world. So a sort of... Um, dogmatic development version of Parmenides. And I can't remember the guy who who thought that everything was static and that there was no change and change was only apparent. I, I guess that's that's sort of uh, the perfect analogy for the two opposed errors that we have on this issue. On the one hand, you have people that are uh, that deny any sort of change, even though it looks like it. And they say, oh, no, it just appears like change. On the other hand, you have people that believe that the Catholic faith is somehow in constant flux in order to um, defend what may seem on the surface to be indefensible. But as good Thomists, and at least in uh, following the peripatetic um, tradition, we can we can distinguish. I, I guess it, it is kind of like a, a sort of distinction um, when, it, when it comes to doctrine that is as important to the, the distinction when it comes to being of act and potency. And that is the distinction between the revealed formula and then the revealed meaning. Ah, okay, I got it backwards. It was uh, Heraclitus uh, said that there was only becoming. Parmenides said that there was no change, only apparent. Okay, so I am I'm going to be Aristotle to uh, their Heraclitus and Parmenides. That, that's what I'm going to do. So the distinction in the revealed judgment is going to be between the reception of the form, the revealed formula, and the revealed meaning. So the revealed formula is going to be the words or images that are presented before us. And the revealed meaning is going to be the sense of those images and of those formulas. So St. Thomas, uh, he's going to treat actually this question in a number of places. And Father Sola has a great uh, sort of 
quote on this is that you have a lot of people that are going around thinking that we need to look just for just for the new uh, when it comes to theology. But actually, when you look in the old schoolmen, you see that they have treated these issues before us and actually in a more profound manner. So St. Thomas treats this question um, of the revealed formula versus the revealed meaning uh, in, in the issue of solving how certain prophets uh, prophecy can take place. Because you have some prophets in Scripture that uh, seem to receive the revealed formula, but they don't receive the revealed meaning. Uh, think uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh received uh, the revealed images of the, of the cows and of the heads of grain, but he didn't know the meaning. It was only when Joseph gave him the meaning that he not only uh, was able to assent to the revealed formula, but also the revealed meaning. So uh, St. Thomas, he's going to say, uh, on the one hand, there he calls it the reception of things. That's the revealed formula, is the reception of things. So uh, I guess you could say the, the passing down of the uh, images of, I'll, I'll use the cows uh, from, for the Pharaoh's cows. And, and if you guys are listening to this and you don't get the reference, please read your Bibles more. But uh, yes, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's cows. The, uh, you had the skinny cows eating all the fat cows, and um, that is the image. So Pharaoh received a certain thing, a certain revealed formula. On the other hand, the revealed meaning, St. Thomas is going to call that the judgment on the things received. So you have uh, Pharaoh uh, have the image of the cows, and then Joseph says, well, the skinny cows eating the fat cows means that there will be seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine. So you guys are going to want to save up food for this. So uh, revelation became complete when Joseph was able, able not only to receive the formula, but also the meaning of the formula. So when it comes to what exactly divine revelation is, divine revelation materially, merely materially consists of the revealed formula. So that's the matter that, that sort of passed down. But revelation formally consists in the revelation of the meaning. So technically, uh, if you want to, if you want to be technical, Pharaoh did not receive divine revelation. Pharaoh materially received divine revelation, I guess if you want to put it like that. But formally speaking, Pharaoh did not receive divine revelation. Now, uh, there's a few uh, corollaries that actually uh, come from this. So first, it is important to recognize that it is not necessary that the prophet have to comprehend completely all that is truly contained in the revealed formula. So when it comes to uh, that which he passes down, it's necessary, it's uh, sufficient for divine revelation that he understands something of it, but not that he comprehend all of the virtualities uh, within what he has received. Second, uh, the second thing to consider is that it's not necessary that the prophet or the apostle explain all those things that are contained in the revelation that he gives. So when we have St. John reveal that the word was made flesh, while St. John perceived 
Christ's risibility, so the Christ's ability to laugh, which is a property of human nature. In this revelation, he did not explain this point. So the prophet or the apostle, on the one hand, doesn't need to comprehend completely everything contained in the revealed formula, although with the apostle, the apostles will say that they do, which is going to be important later. But second, they don't need to explain completely the meaning of the revealed formula, because we know when it comes to uh, certain propositions, that these propositions, they're going to have a, uh, a sort of surface level meaning. And then you're also going to be able to explain this meaning in a lot more detail. Uh, think of the difference between um, a sort of uh, thesis statement versus the entire essay. The entire essay is already contained in the thesis statement, yet the entire essay explains the thesis statement more. So when it comes to uh, what the apostles and prophets reveal from what was revealed to them, uh, it doesn't need to be everything. And then third, least of all, and this is going to become very important actually, least of all, is it necessary that all of those who are hearing the preaching of, uh, of Revelation grasp all the meaning present in the revealed formula? So Isaiah, for example, I'm sure Isaiah's message in being received was not received. And I mean, if you know about the life story of Isaiah, uh, this will... Uh, or or Jeremiah or really any of the prophets, you'll you'll get this. So it's not necessary that the revelation first be comprehended completely by the prophet. Second, that everything be explained in, in exhaustive detail. And then third, least of all, that those who are listening grasp everything that's being said. So these three points are very, very important. The only thing that it is necessary is that the prophet understands something of the revealed formula and that he explains something of the revealed formula and that those here and grasp something of the revealed formula or else we wouldn't have prophecy and there wouldn't be any faith. Thus, the starting point of any dogmatic evolution is going to be the revealed formula that have some meaning behind them. So that's the point in which we're going to take from is that we have the revealed formula that is explained and understood to some degree. So when it comes to the levels of understanding uh, with the revealed formula, we can distinguish between three different minds. So in the first, we have the divine mind. Now, obviously, when it comes to the divine mind, the revealed formula is going to be completely and simply understood and completely comprehended according to its most intimate meaning, and then also according to all the virtualities. So all the conclusions that ever could be drawn from it. This is going to be understood completely by the divine mind. So when it comes to the evolution of dogma, we're not talking about an evolution in understanding or in conclusion that is greater than that of the divine mind. Obviously, obviously. So on the second hand, we can consider the apostolic mind. So the mind of the apostles. 
So actually, it's a it's a common sentence of the doctors of the church, and this needs a little bit of explaining, but it's a common sentence that the apostles are also said to know immediately and explicitly all of the virtualities of the dogmas that they preached by um, the infused light of prophecy. So uh, as as I say that, we also need to understand that this doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, it's said to be in second act. So that doesn't mean that it's elicited. It doesn't mean that um, they necessarily need to be holding that all in their brain at once. But it means that if they were uh, to consider something, that it would be instantly elicited. So when it comes to the apostles, we're not comparing our understanding to them either. That's a very important point. We're not comparing ourselves to them when it comes to the understanding of the revealed formula. On the third, we can look at the ecclesial mind. So the mind of the church specifically the primitive church. When it comes to the primitive church, we can actually be relatively confident that the primitive church, in receiving the, uh, receiving the words and the writings of the apostles, one, were not explained all uh, that would be uh, contained in what was revealed, because the uh, there's what's called appropriation. So the apostles couldn't go on... Um, the, the apostles uh, couldn't just go out there and start explaining uh, the most intimate details of Revelation um, to people if they're trying to teach, uh, obviously, same, same way that St. Thomas Aquinas uh, would simplify a lot of his stuff in the Compendium Theologiae or in this, even in the Summa. Um, he, he would appropriate his words uh, and explanations to the understanding of his hearers. Um, your your pastor on Sunday morning, uh, your priest on Sunday morning doesn't go up and in his homily uh, try to explain in as much detail as he possibly could, or that would be uh, completely insufferable. That's that's not the case. So on the one hand, we we know that it wasn't explained uh, in in a great deal, uh, well, in in an exhaustive level of detail. And on the second hand, we also know that they probably didn't passively receive it with uh, all of the virtualities and all of the detail that they possibly could have. They didn't make explicit all that was there in implicit. So when it comes to the mind of the primitive church, that is the mind in which we compare to. So the defect isn't found in Revelation itself. The defect isn't even found in the apostles. The defect is found in the mind of the church. Well, and by that, by defect, I just mean um, in the sense, I guess you could say, of like immaturity. Like when you, uh, let's say, are a very new um, Catholic and you go to start reading catechism or maybe sacred scripture itself, over time, it's the same revealed formula. It's the same book. But over time, you're going to more deeply penetrate not only the meaning of what's present before you, but of all the conclusions that can be drawn uh, from the formula which were set uh, forth before you. It's kind of the same way with the church. Is uh, I, I think it's St. Gregory the Great in his uh, Morals on the Book of Job. He says, uh, he describes actually scripture as growing with the believer 
What he means by that isn't that uh, more is revealed, but by scripture is, is so perfect that it is able to appropriate itself not only to the not only to the wise, but also to the unlearned. And then their continual contemplation, uh, scripture will grow with them uh, in maturity. It's just that sort of book. So we can think of definitely the same way uh, with, with uh, the revealed data. So when it comes to uh, every sentence that the apostles ever preached, we can think of them like seeds. They're seeds which the apostles themselves understood, but they're seeds because they appropriated them to their listeners. And they didn't necessarily draw all out that they that they possibly could have uh, if they wanted to go into exhaustive detail. So they're like seeds that, that virtually contain many concepts which are proper to, to divine revelation, which grow in the mind of the church as she contemplates um, the, the revealed formula. So... Again, uh, when we when we talk about the evolution of dogma, we're talking about the evolution of dogma, not in the sense that we know more than the apostles, not in the sense that we know more than God, but in the sense that we have comprehended greater the meaning and the uh, extension, I guess you could say, of divine revelation as uh, given by the apostles, more than the early church, not more than the apostles. So... We're so at this point, uh, we're actually able to draw, I guess, the lines uh, in the sand when it comes to the debate and put forward what the true question is when it comes to the development of doctrine. So here we're uh, we're able to distinguish between meaning that is formally expressed and meaning that is virtually implicit. So back to our example with uh, with Christ and risibility. When we say the word was made flesh, what is formally expressed is that uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, took on humanity. That is what's being formally expressed. Now, when it comes to meaning that is virtually implicit, that would be like um, sort of what's said to be a proper illative process or proper discourse that we talked about before where we are drawing forth something which is virtually contained in that statement of the apostle, yet still contained, although not formally expressed. So when we talk about the meaning formally expressed, that is the uh, explanation and greater definition of terms, that's going to be the first degree of evolution that we talked about before. Now, meaning virtually implicit, that which is brought out and concluded after a proper uh, reasoning process, that's going to be the second degree of evolution. So where is where is the line in the sand? I guess you could say, where is the terms of the debate? What is most hotly debated over? And um, the, when it comes to the first degree of evolution, the meaning formally expressed, there's going to be basically universal agreement um, that we are able to uh, define the meaning of terms in scripture to greater clarify uh, what's happening? That's that's universal agreement. Um, even even Protestants and Orthodox would would agree with that. But where the real battle lies is going to be in the second degree of evolution. You have certain oh, that is meaning virtually implicit. You have certain thinkers that are going to deny that we can define um, 
the uh, meaning which is virtually implicit. We're going to have other thinkers who are going to say that it's already defined. Uh, it's just really dependent on how much you, you can know. You'll have certain thinkers that are going to just completely change the definition of what it means to be virtually implicit, like Suarez. And then you have certain thinkers like Sola who are going to take the position of, of St. Thomas. And he's going to say that before the definition of the church, that which is virtually implicit is believed um, by the, quote, assent of theology. And it's not a matter of divine and Catholic faith until after the definition of the church. Not because it wasn't revealed, but because it wasn't formally and explicitly revealed. And that which is the object of divine faith is that which is formally and explicitly revealed. And then the question of how that transition is going to happen, that's going to uh, cover another large portion of this study. So the, we can see now kind of where the lines are drawn and where we're going to be uh, going from here. But, uh, oh, there's a lot of... Um... Okay, so... Sorry, I didn't see any of these... Uh in the live chat. So as regards us, uh, is it right to say uh, it's only necessary nothing be passed down to us, which is contrary to the complete meaning of the formula? No, it has to be virtually contained in it as premise to conclusion or as unclear to clear. Uh, Suarez, uh, Lugo, and uh, their followers are going to say that there's some sort of um, said to be a physical connexive um, relationship between the revealed deposit and conclusions so that uh, that which is uh, not even virtual um, can be defined by the church. But you can't you can't really hold that anymore. Um, <laughs> that was that was held. Uh, and then uh, because of the strong emphasis of the magisterium on the finality of revelation uh, at the time of the apostles, you can't really hold it anymore. Okay, specifically, what do you mean uh, at this point by mind of the church? Okay, good question. So when it comes to mind of the church, it's basically going to be the, um, the I guess you could say the body of the, the, the body of believers, um, generally speaking. Uh, th this really is going to be um, the, basically everybody who's not an apostle. Who, who isn't a bearer of revelation, but is a receiver of revelation. I guess it's a better way saying those who receive revelation, uh, that's going to be the mind of the church. So uh, obviously it's going to vary from uh, your uneducated layman who basically know the apostles creed all the way to uh, in the early church, uh, certain bishops who have been ex more extensively taught uh, in the articles of the faith. So it's going to, it's going to really vary uh, who, but uh, I guess, I guess we could, um, we could talk about, generally speaking, uh, that which enters into the official mind of the church is going to be um, the uh, various arms of the of the magisterium. But I guess you could you could just set a set a cap point at uh, at smartest person if you, if you want to go like that. But I mean, I, I'm I'm being right now uh, extremely uh, fluid and general uh, with how I'm. But is it like a is it like a census fidelium kind of way? Um. I guess I guess you could say I 
I guess you could say, um, yes, I guess you could say yes. It's like sort of the general um, extension of the understanding of the church, because it's really hard, uh, especially back then, to to speak of um, the magisterium of the church in an extremely uh, definitive way. I mean, you, you basically have uh, your local bishop uh, is going to be uh, official teacher. And then uh, you can also have some maybe some synods, um, maybe some uh maybe some wider uh, sort of uh, judgments that are being made in the second century. Uh, but, but really early on, I mean, the, the overlap between that which the magisterium teaches and that which the, the faithful generally understand is going to be pretty uh, close to where now um, the magisterium has made a lot more decisions uh, due to a necessity than the average uh, believer really even needs to um, understand technicalities <laughs> to Oh, bro, you had to do me like that. No, uh, this this is a series, so people go through and, and watch later. But uh, yeah. Okay, well, that's all I have. Um, Got to get going, but God bless.